0: This morning is September 11. Nearly half a generation has passed since the days that will always be remembered simply by those numbers 9 11. My experience, like yours, is just as personal and different as you find yours to be. I happened to be in a Mexican village 21 years ago, and I was in such a remote place, and the coverage was so The news coverage was so poor and so unreliable, I didn't really understand what had happened until about three days later. I have a very different mental and emotional connection to that day than most of you if you happen to be in the United States. This morning I spoke to a few young adults who have no living memory of what we call 9-11. They were children. And their, their recollection of the day really is just they think they have vague memories of their parents speaking of it. One person I talked to said he's pretty sure he's confusing childhood memory with stories he heard later and things he saw on TV. In any case, that day our country and really the whole world changed forever. And our, our country is called upon us, all Americans, all citizens and residents of the United States to make this a day of remembrance and good works. I think that's a reasonable and good thing to keep in mind. And though I was so far away and probably most of you were here on the West Coast, you may feel your own sense of distance from those events from so long ago. But this morning I can't help but think of tables with a chair empty. Or someone should be. And all the people who are still mourning and still grieving. Whose lives were forever changed that day. And I think we should pray for such people. I think we should be grateful for all the good that we saw that day. And all the good that continues. I think we should pray against the evil that brought that day about. And I think we should pray for God to comfort those who are still mourning. And ask that in all of those terrible circumstances good news of jesus will still have time to arrive and comfort and bless and save the people who still need him so let's be quiet for a moment as a church family give you a moment to pray yourself and then i'll lead us in public prayer Father, for the third time today with my church family in this third service, I'm grateful to be able to open a Bible in public with them, to speak to you in public, pray along with them aloud. And I'm comforted that your word tells us that we don't know how to pray as we should, but your Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That terrible day reminded us, Lord, of both evil and righteousness. It's a stark reminder to how brief our lives are and how limited we are to control them. So I do pray, God, for those who are missing loved ones today, for whom this day, in a way it isn't for most of us, is a day of deep personal anguish. I pray that you would give them hope by sending disciples of Jesus around them that would be kind to them. Treat them well. Do good on their behalf. Serve them well. And open up a relationship and a friendship with them where they could speak of eternal life and perfect satisfaction and joy and peace which this world cannot and will not ever offer. I truly don't know how to pray, Lord. There's too many needs. I'm too ignorant. But you're not. You know everything. You're good all the time. You're perfectly good in every way. And you know how to bring comfort and peace and even joy out of deep sorrow. So we pray that that you would and that you would give us, Lord, the blessing of honoring you and serving you every day of our lives and speaking your good news and your comfort and peace to those who need it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been praying this morning and prayer should be constant for Christians. That is the witness of the New Testament. The entire Bible both through relating the lives of men and women who walked with God and the specific instruction they gave us in Scripture on God's behalf. And we find here in God's Word tells us that prayer should be constant for Christians, that our relationship with God should consist of hearing from His Word. God was kind and good enough to put what He most wanted us to know in writing God knows more than He put in the Bible. He didn't tell us all that He could have, but the essential things, everything that pertains, Peter says, to life and godliness has been already provided to us. And when we open the Bible, we get to hear the Word of God Himself. When Jesus was tempted, He said that man would not live by bread alone, but instead, by every word that came out of the mouth of God. That's what happens when we open the Bible here in church, when you read the Bible privately, your Heavenly Father, who loves you enough to write His Word down for you and His send His Son after you, speaks to you. Then in prayer, you have the audacious privilege of speaking to Him. And God, who made everyone and everything, has the God... Capacity to attend to you as if you were the only one who's speaking. Pay attention to you the way a father does his beloved child. That's one of many reasons that God's primary way of expressing Himself and His relationship to us is that He is our Father who is in heaven. And prayer in our life with God should be constant. That's what Paul told the Colossians, Colossians 4, verse 2. I'd love for you to read this with me. It'll be on the screen. It'll be on your notes as well. Paul wrote the ancient church of Colossae these instructions regarding prayer. Read it with me. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The instruction is to be steadfast in prayer, to get after it and to never give up to be diligent, to be consistent. He emphasizes that with the second instruction. As you're steadfast in prayer, Paul says, be watchful. In other words, stay awake at it. Don't go to sleep. Don't get drowsy. Don't get lazy. Stay alert for the purpose of prayer and do all of this. Of course, you're talking to God. You have the privilege of talking to God. Do it all with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul, of course, got these ideas from his Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the few parables in the Bible where we're explicitly told the point of the parable is in Luke chapter 18. I won't take time to read it with you and to explain it to all of you. I just want you to see that Jesus wanted people to pray and never give up. And that is the point of the parable. In Luke chapter 18, it pictures two very different people. A helpless widow who is being brutalized by the system and has no one to advocate for her. The only person who can bring her justice is a judge, and Jesus expressly says that he was a wicked man, had no fear of God or people. But she kept going and asking the judge for justice, for righteousness on her behalf against someone who was tormenting her. And the punchline in the parable is, not because he's a good man, but because she keeps asking, the judge finally relents and does the right thing. And Jesus draws a contrast, and he says, listen to the wicked judge. If even a wicked man can eventually do the right thing because someone persistently asks, how much more will your heavenly Father do what is right for you? It's a matter of comparison. If even wicked people can do what's right when they're asked, how much more will God, who is perfect, do what is right on your behalf? The question at the end of the parable that Jesus leaves us with is not whether God will listen to prayer and answer prayer, but whether we will have enough faith to keep praying. That's why Luke introduces the parable very pointedly. Luke 18 verse 1 says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not... What's it say there? Lose heart. heart. That's the question. Not whether God will answer, not whether God cares, but whether you will continue to pray or whether you will lose heart. D.L. Moody explained it like this. Some people think God does not like to be troubled with our constant coming and asking. The way to trouble God is not to come at all. That's what troubles God's heart when His children don't speak to Him, when His children grow tired, when His children stop having trust in Him and stop asking. Jesus explicitly told that prayer should be constant in the life of a Christian in Matthew chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Here's the contrast again between ordinary sinful fathers and the perfect heavenly father. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who, last two words, ask Him. The question is whether we will keep asking. Those are just three quick looks in the Bible to show you how pervasively the Bible tries to tell us that we should be constant in prayer. And in this third week, before Friend Day, before we ask you to prayerfully, lovingly, boldly ask your friends to come to church with you so that they can hear the gospel, I want to answer this question. What should we pray for when we're sharing the gospel? If you're a person who is a disciple of Jesus, who loves Jesus and loves people enough that you want other people to know about Him, and prayer should pervade your whole life what sorts of things should you be praying for? An answer in five parts quickly. First, pray that God will give us, all of us, us individually and us as a church family, a deep desire for people to be saved. That's where it all starts, and sadly that's the first place that Christians who love the Lord lose touch with people who don't know the Lord. They lose their heart for them to know Jesus the way we do. We lose our memory of what life was like without Him. We grow so comfortable and so joyous in our own salvation that our heart is no longer heavy for those who don't know Him. Compare that with Paul. Brother, my, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The Apostle Paul, who knew the Lord Jesus as well as anyone who ever lived, said that his continual prayer for Israel, his fellow Jews, is that they would be saved. This same section in Romans goes further by telling you that Paul's heart was broken and anguished, and Paul even says that if it were possible, he would wish that he could be separated from Jesus so that his countrymen, the Jews, would believe in him. It's not possible, but it's a portrait of what a heart who loves the Lord, how that same person also loves the lost. If you as a disciple of Jesus want to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, if you want to be like the first Christians, most importantly, if you want to be like Jesus himself, pray in all your prayers for yourself. Pray always that God will give you a deep desire in your heart that he will sadden your heart for the things that sadden the heart of God that you will be burdened by the things that burden Jesus, that you will care the way God does for people who don't know Him. Number two, also learn from the Apostle Paul. Pray to build sacrificial and loving relationships with those same people. One of the challenges of teaching the Bible is that wherever I open this book, we're a long time ago and a long way off. We're at least 2,000 years if we open it in its most recent writings at the end of the book. If we read the history of Israel, we're further back still. That means that to understand the original message, you have to understand a little bit about the original audience. And what I'm about to read you is a little paragraph out of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Let me orient you to the ancient world a little bit. Because if you understand who Paul was, this is actually one of the most stunning cultural transformations narrated in the entire Bible. You see, if Paul were living among us today, if he were part of contemporary society in the 21st century, there's the best term we could probably find for Paul would be to call him an ultra-Orthodox Jew. Paul was not only observant, Paul was extremely observant. Paul was the best and most religiously proficient student of the most accomplished teacher of his time. In his world, anytime Paul was in Israel, in his homeland, if he walked into a religious discussion, the entire room would pay attention. Paul was a man who through learning and through consistency carried a lot of weight in his religious world. And Paul has been a little bit reinvented, I think, as someone who as he persecuted Christians was troubled in his conscience. I won't take time to get into all of that, but I don't find any biblical evidence of that at all. I think Christians who have read the life of Paul have read their own experience back into Paul's, and they seem to think that while Paul was persecuting Christians, he started feeling bad about it. What I read instead is that Paul says that from his earliest days, as best he understood God, he served him, he specifically says, with a clear conscience. In other words, when Paul was consenting to the murder of Christians, he thought he was serving God and doing it. He thought he was stamping out a dangerous lie that was going to destroy the whole nation. And to say that Paul was observant, again, is a very, very mild understatement. And yet you find here he's writing a letter to Greco Roman people in the city of Corinth. And the closest analogy I have for you in the 21st century Corinth was like Vegas at its worst. Corinth was so bad that even in the ancient world, it became a verb. And if you Corinthianized, it meant that you were completely off the rails and debauched. What is an ultra-observant Jewish teacher doing in a place like Corinth, befriending Greco-Roman idolaters, who would do things like, before the food was sold in the market... The people who were going to sell the meat would take a little bit of it, offer a prayer of dedication over it, and offer it to an idol. They would literally invoke the names of demons and false gods over their merchandise before it went out into the market. You can read in 1 Corinthians that that kind of upset people in the church. Some Christians were saying, we can't eat that. It was dedicated to a false god. Others were saying, it's just meat. Enjoy. Paul settles that controversy for them. You can read that later. But what I want you to read is how much Paul flexed and changed and sacrificed in love so that he could reach these Corinthians. First Corinthians, now that we have that cultural background, this will make, I hope, a little more sense. First Corinthians nine. Paul wrote, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a what's it say there? Servant, Servant all. Could you say that, by the way? People who know you well, if you said, I've made myself a servant to everybody I meet, would they believe you? Maybe, maybe not. Let's keep reading. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And indeed, if you keep reading Paul's story, you're going to find out that one of Paul's co-workers was a Gentile, a young man named Timothy, and Paul had him circumcised if they were going to a Jewish audience. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Here we come to the heart of the matter. Here's the personal sacrifice. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Read the rest of it with me, please. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul's preferences, Paul's privileges, Paul's culture, it was all sacrificed. It was all negotiable. It was all surrenderable. Not his faith, not his devotion to Jesus, but all of the other mere human cultural packaging that came with it, Paul was quick to renounce it and to return to being as observant as he once was so that he could tell observant Jews about Jesus or to sit in the market and do things that he would have found detestable just a few years earlier so that he could talk to Greco-Roman pagans about the one true God who could save them, his name being Jesus Christ. If you and I are going to be faithful disciples in this age, we also are going to have to flex culturally. Never surrendering our faith, never surrendering what is actually true, but sacrificing all other secondary, external, temporary things so that the good news of Jesus can be told, so that people will share with us in the blessings of the gospel. And that's hard. Culture is hard because we infuse our own culture with the idea that this is the one true way to honor God, and it's very hard to separate cultural expressions, personal preferences, temporary fads with actual true biblical faith. I'll give you an example, and this will be familiar to some of you. I came to this church as senior pastor 17 years ago. When I came to this church, we had... Two grand pianos, a pipe organ, and a robed choir. The pastor of this church then and me for a little while wore a wool suit and a silk tie, and on the first day I preached here, I even had black wingtips on under, around my feet while I preached wearing a wool suit. Now, why was that? Because all my life I had been given this simple cultural idea. If we want to honor God, we wear our best. Some of you still practice that. God bless you for it. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. But the more I talked about the issue, listened to you, lived in this town, I came to realize something. And I'll tell you a story to show you why I'm dressed like this. (laughs) A man came to Christ in our church about the second year I was here. And once he was in our church, he told me later how he decided to start attending the church. He said, the first Sunday I was here, I had a pretty good idea what kind of church this was. So I poked my head in through the back door and took a look at you. I just wanted to see what you were wearing. And since you weren't wearing a suit, I decided to stay. I said, tell me about that. He said, well, to me, a pastor in a congregation that dress like that, I know they don't mean it like that, but what I always heard was... You don't belong here. This isn't your kind of place. But since you were dressed like me, I thought maybe it'd be all right, and I stuck around. Now, that's just a teeny, tiny, trifling story. But the first Sunday I dressed like this, standing right there, I'll never forget it, my heart was racing in my chest. I felt really, 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 really uncomfortable. To be wearing khakis and a long sleeve shirt instead of a wool suit and a silk tie. Why is that? That's the power of culture. What Paul sacrificed was enormously greater and the point of it all simply was this. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. We have to make all Whatever sacrifices and accommodations and changes are necessary that are short of dishonoring God. And believe me, some people told me that I was. When I took my suit off, one guy told me right before I walked up to preach, Have you no fear of God, sir? <laughs> I didn't have time to answer the question. Uh, I just assured them that I did and did my best in my jeans. It's a very, very very small microcosm, a little tiny story, but I'm telling you this because it matters today. Christians are so invested in things that are merely earthly, in things that won't last, in things that are not part of the historic Christian faith, that they are spending much of their time arguing and even demonizing their people who are different from them and differ from them rather than telling them about the good news of the gospel. In the last few weeks, I've seen spiritual leaders that I once respected and held in high regard and learned from calling their political adversaries demons online. Listen, we're called to love our enemies, not to hate them in return. We are called to take the hate and rejoice in it, trusting that our reward in heaven will be greater for putting up with it. The point of building relationships is so that those relationships can bear the weight of the gospel. Number three, we pray for boldness to tell them the good news. It does no good to pray for a heart that cares about people and also to build relationships with people and become genuinely friendly and loving and serve them unless we use all of that to someday tell them about Jesus and the best news of all. Paul himself asked for prayer. Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and, Paul says, also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I want you to hear what Paul's saying. Even though Paul's in prison for his faithfulness, he says, keep praying for me because I'll need to speak again. Pray that I do it boldly as I should. Pray that I don't back off. Pray that I don't water it down. Pray that I don't keep quiet. Pray for me that I will be bold. So I will ask you, if the Apostle Paul needed prayer, how much more do I? How much more does everybody who opens the Bible on behalf of this church to teach someone else about Jesus? Some of the best and godliest teachers are not ever in the pulpit of this church. They're across the parking lot teaching our kids amazing enormous things are happening in children and youth ministry and young adult ministry when people open the Word of God to that little young population. Pray for them. Don't give up on anybody. Don't demonize anybody. Give Jesus time and room and trust that He can change the darkest of hearts and that a person that you may think whose thinking is actually demonic could still have his eyes opened by Jesus if you will pray to see him as Jesus does, build a relationship with him, and then use that trust, use that love, use that genuine friendship that is offered without conditions. Use it for the best purpose of talking about Jesus. I can't speak too much about him because this does go out on the internet. The internet has a weird way of spreading things and getting people in trouble without meaning to. But there's a pastor alive today I met several years ago who's one of the most unlikely believers in the world alive today. He was an actual communist. Not as a label, but as a part of an actual party in one of the few countries that still practices and espouses publicly communism by that name. Brutal, totalitarian place. He was an officer in that nation's military. And he was given the assignment to spy on a small Christian church. I heard this testimony myself. It's not an internet conspiracy story. Know him personally. He was sent to spy, and because his assignment was to take the names of anyone who came in and out of that church so that they could be targeted for surveillance and, if necessary, harassment and, if necessary, imprisonment. He had to be close enough to the door to hear what the Christians were doing inside that little church building. And he heard the gospel week after week after week after week. And one day, sitting outside the church, he prayed to Jesus and became a Christian himself. Then he kept doing his job, spying on what is now or now his fellow Christians But he eventually came under such conviction by God, he went to his superiors and said, I think I have to resign the party and my commission because I'm one of them now. Well, that didn't go so well for him. They gave him a beating, and he was literally in line, lined up to go to a prison camp when one of his superior officers saw him in the line and God put it in his heart to intervene to rescue him from the place he was being sent to, he's pastoring today. As genuine and as legit and as sacrificial and as loving and as courageous of a Christian brother as you'll ever have in your life. And once upon a time, somebody would have called him demonic. Don't ever give up on people. Keep telling them about Jesus and pray for the boldness to speak to them. Number four, pray for God to send other witnesses into their lives. You're not alone. God has more people than you. I know it's surprising, but God doesn't depend on you and me alone. He has a big family. He can mobilize people as He wishes, and Jesus taught us to do that. Matthew chapter 9, when He saw the crowds, speaking of Jesus... When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is the heavy heart of Jesus, seeing people as they are without him. He knows he's the good shepherd. He knows they don't have a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's study the Bible for a second. I just don't want to teach it to you. I want to break it down with you so that you can understand it. See if you can follow Jesus' word pictures here. Jesus walks out with His disciples, sees a big crowd and is moved spiritually with compassion for them because they have no spiritual life, no spiritual guidance. They have no spiritual shepherd to protect them. He knows He's the one. He starts teaching them. He turns to His disciples and says something symbolic. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What do you think the harvest represents then? Who's the harvest? All the people. All the people who are harassed and helpless and spiritually lost. The Lord of the harvest is God. And Jesus, note this, Jesus and his disciples are already in the harvest. They're in the field. They're doing the work. They're bringing the harvest in. But what Jesus is telling them to do is ask the boss to send us help. There's too many people here. The harvest is too big for just us. Ask the boss of the harvest to send more workers to bring it home. If that doesn't connect very well with you in coastal Orange County in 2022, let me recommend for you to do what was done to me when I was a child, visit rural Kansas during the harvest time. On my mother's side, they're all farmers. And my parents occasionally made the terrible decision of taking me to Kansas with them during harvest. Guess what happens if you show up at a farm while they're bringing the harvest in? You work, they find something for you to do. You dumb, goofy, city-dwelling, bilingual, little weird missionary kid, we will find something for you to do here in the vast plains of Kansas because we've worked for months for this. And if we don't get this harvest in... All that work will be lost. We can be in financial hardship real quick if one storm, one disaster befalls the harvest before we can get it safely into the elevators. Those big, giant elevators where the grain is stored feed the rest of the country. All of that takes work. Jesus' teaching is this. You're already in the harvest. While you're there, pray to God to send you more people to join you. I've seen terrible things online in the last few weeks. I also saw a beautiful testimony. One of the sweetest women in our church who pictures Jesus so well said that her interest in Jesus began when she watched her sister battle cancer. And do it in a way that made little sense to her because she, could, she realized she could not do what her sister was doing. It changed her whole perspective to watch a Christian suffer as a Christian. And that was the first thing that God used to get her involved and interested in the one that the cancer patient said was the cause of her patience, her resilience, her kindness while she suffered. Jesus has all kinds of workers and all kinds of ways to reach your loved ones, so you do your part, but also ask God to send other people to them. And finally, remember, this is all spiritual. Pray for their eyes to be open to the glory of Jesus. Paul writes the Corinthians again in his second letter, reminding us that this is not mere mechanics. This is not a sales pitch. This can be reasoned, but reason alone will not win the battle for the hearts of people. It's spiritual. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's a heavy sentence. Paul says Jesus is God himself. When you see Jesus, you're seeing God. He is the very portrait, image, essence. He is God Himself, God in the flesh. What has happened with the people who don't know Him is they've been spiritually blinded. And if you're absolutely blind, no amount of light will do you good. The blindness has to be healed first. Verse 5 should be in my heart and the heart of our church. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake. Jesus moved Paul to write these words about Christ, saying what we proclaim is not ourselves. In other words, we're not the message. A pastor I read after has had a great exchange right before church. A new guy walked in, not a Christian, first time churchgoer, and said to this pastor I like, so you're the guy with all the answers. And he said, no, I'm the guy that tells you about that guy. That's exactly right. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. That's our proclamation, that Jesus really is Lord, that He did conquer sin, that He did conquer death, that He can give eternal life. But look at the second part of the proclamation. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your, what's it say? Servants for Jesus' sake. To put that in stark first century terms, Paul is saying our proclamation is not ourselves. We're not talking about ourselves. We're not building a brand. Our message is simple. Jesus is Lord and we're also telling you that He is Lord and we are your, first century term, We're your slaves because we belong to him. I mean, a man who was almost certainly wealthy and certainly enjoyed prestige, someone who had everything religious life in his day and his age could offer, that had the admiration of his entire nation, who could hold a religious audience in the palm of his hand with his pronouncements, Paul forsook all of it for the sake of Christ and told idolatrous Greco-Roman pagans in the church of Corinth who Jesus saved and in their immaturity came to doubt and to criticize Paul themselves. Paul said to them, you're confused. Our entire message is that Jesus is in charge and we're your slaves because we love Him. Could you say that your life recently has been portraying that Jesus is in charge? Could you take the further, harder step of saying that you identify yourself as a servant to other Christians, and especially to unbelievers, not because they're in charge of you, but because you're willing to humble yourself as the Lord did so that they could hear the good news about Him? The great need of the hour is for more Christians to willingly adopt the posture of their Savior, To take up the mantle and the identity of the servant, not because it's right. For for you to put yourself under them, not because they've asked you to, but because you're willing to sacrifice and serve in whatever na- way is necessary, so long as they get to hear the good news about Jesus from you, so that they can experience for themselves that Jesus really is Lord. Church, what I'm trying to tell you is simply this: prayer is the power of God for our witness. This isn't a speech, this isn't a sales talk. Let's pray you pray with me now, please? Talk to Christians first, very quickly. I gave you five things to pray for, that God will give you a deep desire for people to be saved, that you would build sacrificial, loving relationships with those people, that you would be bold to talk about Jesus. That God would send other people to them. And finally, that their eyes would be open to the goodness and the glory of Jesus. Which one of those is most necessary for you? Does that feel like a whole other world away? Can I just invite you to take the next step in prayerfully in following Jesus as His disciple who talks about Him, helps other people see Him, Gives the witness so that he can save them? You've been consumed by things that aren't going to last. You've been ignoring the eternal truths that matter most. All these things that have people so wound up, they'll change, they'll blow away in the wind of history. But Jesus, he's eternal. He saves forever. He's worth any sacrifice you're willing to make for him. And I've been talking to Christians and almost exclusively to Christians these last three weeks, but friend, are you a Christian? Are you sure of your salvation? Regarding your heart, your standing before God, regarding heaven, is it a hope-so thing or more of a no-so thing with you? Are you entirely sure that you belong to Him? If God called you to account later today, would you be able to answer joyfully, gladly, confidently that, yeah, I'm good with you, Lord. Thank you. If not, can I invite you to be saved today? Can I invite you to call on Jesus and ask Him to be your Savior? A woman did just that between services today. How about you? Lord, I pray if there's